Welcome to another episode of Cloud Unfiltered. Today we have Joe Duffy of Pulumi. How you doing, Joe? Doing great. Thanks for having me, guys. Joe, how does it feel to be the first guest on our show to have a guitar walk-in? You know, because I mean, we haven't I, done that before. <laughs> I feel like a rock star, guys. Thanks so much. You're you welcome. Know, that's, <laughs> just, for just for you. You know, I'm never going to use. I'm going to actually retire that after this. So that's that's it. That's the only time. You and have to come up with a new solo for every uh, every new guest. <laughs> <laughs> it was just for Joe Duffy and for Andrew's mom. That's that's yes, about it. Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> so anyway, Joe, uh, thanks for coming to the show. I really appreciate it. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of where you started out and, uh, you know, how, how this whole kind of career came about in 30 seconds. No, I'm just kidding. That's, that's long. <laughs> no, I, I started my career over 20 years ago, actually, believe it or not, which makes me feel super old. It's crazy to say that, but um, really, um, you know, love programming. And so I got into tech early on and uh, ended up at Microsoft for, for many years. Um, early engineer on the .NET framework, on the C-sharp programming language, so learned a lot about frameworks and, and language design. And, you know, I had, you know, about 14 years there uh, running. And before I left, I was running the, the programming languages group that was doing developer tools and developer strategy and really got excited about the cloud as part of that. Um, obviously, a lot of Azure projects. And one of the projects I, I was part of before leaving was taking .NET and taking it open source and cross-platform and getting into work in Linux and, and one of the motivators for that was making sure that Azure was a great environment for containers and that you could run .NET programs in containers in Azure. And so as part of that, I got super excited about the cloud and, and really came at it more from the developer point of view, I would say, early on. Um, you know, actually, my first big job was at EMC. So I definitely saw sort of the IT and operations side early in my career, then went off into developer land and then saw an opportunity to really bridge the gap help developers you know, get more out of the cloud, use it as a building block as part of their applications, and help infrastructure teams be a whole lot more productive. And in doing so, break down the silos between those two sides of the house. And, and that's what led to Pulumi, is the excitement around that opportunity. No, I think that's great. And you know, you, you, you mentioned something pretty, um, uh, pretty important there, which is breaking down those silos. Because you know, I've been in so, but even pre-Cisco, you know, I was a consultant for about 20 years in, in, you know, in the space. I was both security network and cloud. And it's interesting when we got into this cloud space because it kind of didn't fit that box that everybody else was put in. You know, it's very hard to get these companies to shift to a different way of uh, operating that might be beneficial for them. But a lot of people have been there, been in their positions for 10, 15 years, 20 years, and they're saying, well, I'm going to retire in five years. So I don't want to learn a whole new way to operate. So, you know, what have you seen and what is, you know, what is that? What's a, what's a way or, or a method that you think can start to break down these barriers? I, you know, I, I think a lot of, for my experience, like talking about folks on the ground, like a lot of people want to break down these barriers. It's just, they kind of don't know how, right? Like, how do I empower my developers to be self-serve, but know that they're, you know, not going to violate cost policies or security policies or compliance. And so, you know, I think it really starts around how do we work together as a team? And it, it's very difficult because if you're, if you're a developer or you're an operator, you know, you, you don't always have a lot of control over how the different teams operate. Right, so it's really important that you have sort of that management buy-in. And I think I'm seeing that a lot more these days because really every business is becoming a software business, right? And, and not only a software business, but all software is cloud software. And so, so now like the entire business is, 
is sort of relying on teams' ability to work together to, to deliver cloud software and use the cloud for new capabilities. I think that's kind of forcing the issue for a lot of teams. And so you have a lot more leaders that are asking the team, hey, how can we do this? And, and that leads to things like continuous delivery, infrastructure's code, policies code, a lot of these tools that if you have these tools in your tool belt, now you have sort of the technologies required to collaborate. You're not, you're not collaborating through a ticketing system anymore. Maybe it's a Kubernetes API, or maybe it's infrastructure's code. Now, especially nowadays, we're all remote, right? Like we're collaborating in a lot of new ways and things like GitHub and GitLab and the, the you know, the ever presence of those sorts of uh, technologies are, are really helping to pave the way. But that's just like step one, right? Those are the capabilities. Now you need the workflows and you need the, the practices that are built up around that. That's something we call cloud engineering. It's, it's sort of, you know, the next phase of this DevOps journey we've been on for the last 10 years. So what, what do you think has changed in the last couple of years that's kind of mitigated this sort of like, um, I call it a toll booth, right? So a lot of times, or, or, or rather it's the difference between, let's say the, a border crossing and the toll booth, right? So if you go back a couple of years ago, uh, there was probably a bunch of different products. A lot of them were maybe identified as a cloud management platform. And for those of uh, you that are listening, right? Air quotes, cloud management platform. Um, you know, they're opinionated, they're bloated. They often take a lot of time to sort of uh, to implement. Um, and, and, and really the pushback was on the developer, developer side, which was, you want me to use these APIs, you want me to use this tool, you want me to essentially have to check in all of my process, all of my code through this one tool in order to consume public, private, doesn't matter, any set of infrastructure. So what's what's changed maybe over the last three to four years that's made the developers acknowledge, okay, there needs to be some sort of toll booth. I need to be metered. I need to make sure I don't uh, come across uh, compliance issues or anything like that. But then also, uh, you know, IT organizations are recognizing, okay, maybe it's not reasonable for me to build a border crossing here. And maybe I should implement something like a toll booth. So what's what's changed? What's driving that change? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I, I From my perspective, it's div division of responsibilities have become a little clearer than I would say they were you know, even five five years ago, you know, th that was one of the things. You know, at Microsoft, I I took a few months um, and just played with technologies, and I played a lot with Docker, and it really was eye opening for me. It, it was kind of like, hey, the entire game has changed, right? Yeah. Now there's a tool and a workflow that actually makes sense for developers in how they think about packaging up their code and shipping their code, and the same thing with serverless, right? Serverless functions really gives you a new way to think about it. I think in the days where it was like. I've got two virtual machines and a database. It was really easy for developers to just not even think about it, right? You write your code, you build your two-tier app, and then you go to your IT organization and say, hey, I need like, now I'm gonna go through the laborious process of getting my infrastructure, right? And that was like every quarter, you'd have the quarterly planning meeting and you talk about cost and budget projections. But nowadays, the developers have things like Docker, they have serverless, they have CICD, now there's Kubernetes in the picture. And so that boundary is now a software boundary, not a human practice boundary. And now that that I think that's crisply defined, or it's it's getting defined, now you can introduce some of these things like compliance and policy, and it's a natural place to put it, right? Look at just look at like Sneak, you know, the amazing success they've had. You know, they really are building up a lot of usage with developers, but really, you know, where where do they get adopted? It's really the the operations and IT security team, right? 
but developers love it because it's integrated into their workflow in a deep and fundamental way. So I think it's that division of responsibility that's really crisps up over the last five years. And we, we've talked. Right. Oh, go ahead, Mike. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's interesting because um, you know we had Matt Bielman on the other day from uh, Netlify, who who you know totally he's all about serverless and and you know FAS and things like that. And he's basically, you know, he says developers, and I, I wonder your, your view on this, you know, if they could just get an API for everything and not have to worry about the infrastructure at all, then that would be how they would love to consume it. So like rows per second for a database, they don't even care. It's just a not, you know, it's just a store somewhere. You know, do you think we'll get to that point? And do you think that's what developers really want or need is, is that kind of like obfuscation away from even serverless and FAS and all that kind of stuff? Just give me the API to connect to and I'll connect to it and be done. I think for some developers, I think the, the interesting thing is uh, like developers are a varied group of people, right? You yeah. Have, JavaScript front-end developers, the full-stack developers, you have people doing static websites, like you know, maybe they're standing up WordPress. Then you have you know, systems developers who are building like Go microservices that are using service discovery and really embracing the cloud. So I don't think there's one answer that, that, that works for everybody. I think he's right though, if it has an API, I think that's kind of the, the uh, table stakes, let's say. Yeah. And then the amazing thing that I often say is like, the world changed forever the second Amazon gave a web API that when you hit it, spins up a server on the back end. Like you're just calling an API and it's creating a virtual machine for you. That, that's amazing. And it opens up all these doors to be being programmable. And the approach that we took for infrastructure as code is only enabled because of that. Yeah. Um, so, so I think what's missing in the what's missing in the private data center because we talked a lot about public cloud. We've talked a lot about developers. Um, you know, as a guy who uh, does not have a illustrious development career, I look at all these tools and I think, wow, yet another way for me to manage this antiquated environment that I have. So, what's missing on the private data center side with the IT administrators that that maybe uh, could help this sort of journey happen faster? Because at the end of the day, right we're seeing this move of applications from the public cloud back into the private cloud, right? I think we realize, hey, this is kind of expensive, right? To just move workloads into the public cloud. So what's gonna help um, make that a more agile process? What, what can we do in the private data center to address that? Yeah, I think everybody wants their own platform, right? From the folks that we talk to for on, you know, the, that are doing private cloud or even hybrid cloud, you know, a lot of people want the capabilities and workflows that they get in AWS, but they want it in their private data center, right? They what they want their pro their own private AWS that's like yes. just as reliable. They want outpost, but not outposts. You know, <laughs> they, right, right. Um, and, and they want a lot of customization, customization and, and control as well. And I talked to a lot of folks who built up their own paths, you know, over the last decade, right, where. Maybe it works a little bit like Heroku, or maybe it works a little bit like AWS, or maybe it actually was like Kubernetes before Kubernetes even existed. It's clear that people are, you know, have been for a very long time clamoring for that, that single pane of glass that gives you the platform that's productive, the patterns and practices that are built in so that you're not always reinventing, you know, the same standard architecture. You've got a, a blueprint for what a microservice at your company looks like. And I think, I talk to a lot of people that are kind of hitting the reset button on what they've built homegrown over the last 10 years and taking a step back and saying, okay, let's adopt 
these these key technologies like Kubernetes is very, very common for serving that purpose, right? So I think to answer your question, like everybody wants that that platform yeah. that the infrastructure platform team can go to the developers and say, hey, here's how you're gonna ship your code. They go to the infrastructure team and say, hey, here's how we're gonna scale this thing up across regions and how we're gonna do it in a cost-effective way, in a reliable way, and in a security and a secure way. So I think that's where people are trying to get to, but there's no doubt like it's way easier to walk up to AWS.com, click a few buttons and get up and running than it is to build your own custom platform. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I almost imagine a, almost like a kitchen where the developers are the people on the front end who are writing the tickets, right? And they're writing them in a special way and they're putting them on the stick at the at the, the front of the kitchen. And then the kitchen is like literally everything's on fire behind them. And so like the reality of the situation is the chef gets the ticket and he's like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to implement this. And it's almost amazing to me because, you know, you've got GitHub, you put your code into Git, there's a webhook, it fires it off. And like one would assume and one would hope that something automatic automatically would happen, but that's just not the world we live in yet. So um, unless of course we're talking public cloud. So you're on fire with the analogies today. I mean, you just got, uh, that was like your, <laughs> you know, I've got my uh, Cisco live is in, is in two weeks hat on. And so I have to, you know, just, I have to just over explain literally everything that comes out of my mouth. Well, yeah, absolutely. No. So good, good, good stuff. But um, so to get back to it, to, kind of the plumium where it came about, you know, what was that something that you had kind of in your mind, you know, while you were at Microsoft and, and kind of thought about it, you know, what, what can, what usually, because we, usually the way things come about is, you know, you're, you're in an area, you see the gap in that area and how hard something is, and then you try and fill that gap. So I'm assuming that you saw a lot of stuff while at Microsoft and was like, okay, well, you know what, I can make this, I could actually do this a lot better knowing my programming background and things like that. So I'm really curious how this all came about. Yeah, it was almost by accident, to be honest. Um, it was really, I spent a fair bit of time at Microsoft, you know, throughout the 2000s, the main thing I worked on was concurrency and asynchronous programming because of multi-core. You know, in 2003, we had this, you know, the end of Moore's Law and the end of the Wintel era, right? Which is like, Andy giveth and Bill taketh away, which was the thing, you know, Andy Grove and Intel would ship faster processors. And by the time they came out, like Microsoft would have shipped software that consumed them and then some. But then with multi-core, that was hard, right? Because developers needed to program multiple cores and nobody understood parallel programming. So it was almost a crisis for the company. Um, that's how you know, Windows upgrades happened and why you'd buy faster processors every year. And so it was kind of, you know, top down, very high level at the company said, hey, we need to solve this. And that led to, you know, extensions to literally every language. Now you look back has async and await primitives and promises. And so as part of that, I learned a lot about like distributed programming languages and then went and worked in Microsoft Research on a distributed operating system. And the interesting thing about that was it was almost like microservices and containers, but we didn't call it that at the time because this was like 2007. Oh. And we learned a lot about how to configure those things and how to program them. And we actually built a programming language around it. And so when Docker came along, I actually recognized that, you know what we're, we're doing here is developers are going to be building distributed applications. That's what this is all about. Serverless, containers, all these hosted services, like we are entering the era of distributed programming, finally, which has been predicted since like the 1960s. You look at a lot of the research back then was around this. And so I just saw like a whole long, like vibrant future. And we were still super early. Like we didn't even have the basic foundation in place. And so that's what Pulumi is really is, hey, infrastructure as code is sort of the foundation, 
that now that we have this, we can build all these rich uh, constructs on top of, including potentially, you know, a, a new programming language that's really distributed at its core. And so that was kind of, a lot of people saw my background, they're like, why, why are you doing infrastructure as code? And like, I explain this to they, them and they think I'm crazy, but I'm really excited about where we're going as an industry. So for, for people who are listening and maybe are not familiar with Polymy, and and that may or may not be myself, right? Uh, I know I know a little bit, right? I've I've dabbled. Um, can you can you kind of give the listeners a little bit of um, an example of something that Polymy can help solve for them, um, or you know, really kind of get into the, the the gory details of the the solution itself? Yeah, so Polymy is an infrastructure as code platform. The key difference with other tools you might be familiar with in in this space is you use general purpose languages. Um, so Python, JavaScript, TypeScript, Go, C Sharp. Um, and effectively, you get the best of the programming language world where you get um, simple things like for loops and if statements, and but you get abstraction, encapsulation, access to great tools around testing, sharing and reuse of patterns and practices, but married with the best of infrastructure's code. So you get the reliability of knowing what's going to get deployed before you deploy it and getting full audit history of who changed what and when, the ability to roll back. Um, and it's inherently multi-language, as I mentioned, but it's multi-cloud as well. So you got AWS, Azure, GCP, Kubernetes, Datadog, vSphere, NS1, like over 70 providers. And I think of all those as building blocks, infrastructure building blocks. And so they're exposed in the, in the tool as building blocks that you can program. And so you assemble these things together, you know, with AWS has what, like 300 different hosted services and each one is a building block that's programmable. You can stitch them together. And then what you can do is build bigger things out of smaller things. And that's that's kind of how we got to where we are on, you know, in the software industry is we built abstractions and we kept, you know, taking the, the gnarly problems and instead of, you know, uh, solving them from first principles every single time, solve it once, package it up, and then build bigger things on top of that. And so that's the approach we took to infrastructure. So if you're setting up a network or a Kubernetes cluster or you know whatever it is it, with infrastructure, you don't always have to go back and write the same 6,000 lines of YAML and copy and paste it. You get a real kind of so approach to software engineering that you can apply to infrastructure. Yeah, and to, awesome. me, to me, the thing that I really liked about it is that, you know, it follows the same GitOps and everything else that, that, that all your rest of your code does. So when I want to create an app, uh, you know, I could just kind of, I could just commit that stuff with everything else I have. And it's super easy. I mean, I think that that was to me when I first tried Pulumi, when, when you guys first released it, I was like, oh, this is awesome. You know, this is, you know, I could just kind of just put this right there. I could check it in and, and do all that kind of stuff. Um, so I thought that was really neat. Um, you know, I think you could do it with with other kinds, but this felt more natural, like inherent to the programming language, which I felt was was a big deal at the time. I thought it was it was it was really cool. Um, it's going to be, you know, the interesting part about that infrastructure as code is uh, kind of the permissions and security that that they have to have in order to do some of that stuff. So, how do you kind of mitigate that? You know, how do you, t you know, how do, or how do you see companies mitigate that um, kind of delineation between the network team and the, you know, and the server team and all this other kind of stuff in order to make this possible so that, you know, they can actually do the things that you're telling them they can do. I mean, that had to be a big thing at, early on because it's kind of, it's getting easier now, but early on, I mean, I think that was probably a thing. Yeah, no, that's, it's definitely, there's a great point. It's important. Um, I think 
the, the interesting thing is what you mentioned, you know, uh, you can check in application code and, and just rely on Git and trigger deployments. And that's really important because we think of infrastructure as a building block. It's a capability that an application developer might want to use. You know, if you're building and publishing, you know, containers, well, you're probably doing something with a private container registry. You're probably updating your task definitions to point to the new version as it gets rolled out. You're probably doing some orchestration blue-green deployment, you know, with canaries and health checks. And you might have a data store as a developer that you want to use. But there's a lot of infrastructure as a developer you're not going to manage. A, because you're not an expert in it, like the networking. B, because if you're in an enterprise, you're probably not even allowed to, right? And so that's exactly what you're pointing out, which is the infrastructure team actually benefits as much, potentially more, from Pulumi than even the developers. I'll, I'll say this is actually a surprise when we launched. We, we saw instant success and traction with infrastructure teams more so than developers. Because infrastructure teams, especially with modern architectures, things move much quicker. It's much more complex, the environment. You're managing a lot of different things. It's probably at a different scale than it was even just a few years ago, like worldwide scale and uh, got to scale up and scale down. And, and so we actually found a lot of more success with infrastructure teams and, and developers as well. But so the infrastructure team typically will define like the networks and the clusters and all the security. We have a policy as code feature. And then they'll turn around and say, okay, developers, you can do some things, but you don't have the keys to the kingdom. It's really just limited to, you can deploy your application, your serverless function, but all the IM stuff, hey, we're gonna do that. All the networking, hey, we're gonna do that. So that's really how the product was built to enable that sort of boundary to exist. No, that's great. I, th I could see you guys. I mean, I already see you have some other, when I was looking at your site today, and I forget the name of it because I don't have it up right now and I'm looking at the screen, but I see that you have some governance and policy uh, kind of things over that. So I foresee that maybe, I don't know if you're, you're, um, you know, you're going to do probably more security and, and analysis of the code and, 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 you know, check whether things are correct, whether before they get deployed and, you know, things like that. I can foresee you putting, uh, like, you know, putting a lot of things on top of this now that you have this framework. I mean, is there stuff that you can talk about that you're already, you know, have, have yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, one of the things I worked on at Microsoft that, that was fun was um, static analysis. So my team managed the static analysis tools and like back in the late 90s, I think it was like, there was this whole trustworthy computing initiative and like we invented all these static analysis tools to find security problems in windows, like buffer overruns and integer overflows. And and I sort of instantly saw the opportunity to say, hey, with Pulumi, we have an object model that represents all the metadata of your cloud resources. We can apply static analysis to that. And so that's, we kind of created this policies code uh, technology called CrossGuard. That's I think the, what you yep, would That's what I was looking at, yeah. Yeah, and that, that allows you to effectively write an extensible set of rules. We have a bunch of policies out of the box, but you can write your own and enforce these at deployment time, just like what you said. So you're not finding things when it's too late. You're actually blocking deployments um, before they get out into production. Now you can also analyze existing resources and find issues in production, like if you're rolling out a new rule. But so that's, that's actually part of our open source platform. And then our enterprise edition, gives you the ability to apply that across your organization. So if you wanna say, hey, in Europe, we've got a whole set of different data governance rules because of GDPR. And so here's like a rule set for that. So it's very flexible, um, supports writing rules in general purpose languages. So the same way that we did that for infrastructure's code, we did that for policies code, um, in addition to supporting uh, the open policy agent as well, since that's becoming sort of a standard. 
Yep. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's really neat. I mean, I, I've, you know, I, I'm a techie, so I get excited about new technology. So whenever I see something neat, you know, that, that I think does something, you know, uh, interesting, then, then I just, I'm all over it. So, you know, when I first saw that come out, I'm like, you know, I saw the evolution of, w- of what you guys did, you know, and I think it's, I think, I mean, I think it's amazing. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that more and more I see all these different layers and I see it in my head, like where you're going with it. I just, you know, so I'm curious to see how much of that really <laughs> is uh, is going to come to fruition. But I, I think that that's, the, you know, you're taking all the natural spots, you know, and injection points into there to kind of, you know, validate and configure and govern and all that kind of stuff. So really neat. Has anyone else, you know, do people and is, is this a thing? Do people actually use your solution like Plumi as a basis of another product? Like, will they use Plumi underneath it and, you know, have some other product on top of it? Yes. We're, so we're starting to see that a lot more. And partially, we we launched this new technology we call the Automation API last year, okay. um, which it effectively allows you to do infrastructure as code as an extension of your technology rather than being a separate CLI tool or like you typically think of infrastructure as code, you're running commands, or maybe it's like integrated to your CI/CD. Sure. This actually allows you to do infrastructure management as part of a bigger system. So um, Cockroach, Cockroach Labs, actually, we have a public case study with them, but they, they, they have a database as a service product where you go into their console, you click a button to create a new Cockroach database, and it spins up Kubernetes clusters on the back end across multiple regions, deploys into them, upgrades the database. All that's using uh, Pulumi to do those deployments. Um, Twilio actually just released a blog um, uh, just yesterday, actually, that shows a plugin to scaffold the new Twilio project that provisions all the infrastructure, and it's actually using Pulumi under under the hood. So, you know, awesome. you think like the next Kubernetes, the next serverless framework, these very well could actually use Pulumi, and there, Pulumi is open source, so all these things can exist without having any commercial attach uh, to us. And so, really excited about the future there. I think the automation API unlocks a lot of potential there. So, yeah, Mike, I, I think you asked a you asked a question that that has been uh, it, it's kind of a good segue into things I've been uh, kind of thinking about as you guys have been talking because you know I'm a technologist I'm a techie but I'm not a developer and so you know I I understand the value of what something like Pulumi can provide especially when when you are a cloud architect and you understand like I am comfortable with Python I'm comfortable with JavaScript right so this is a logical extension. Um, for for me to to kind of head down. Now, what's interesting is you mentioned that you saw a lot of pickup with IT administrators. And at Cisco, we often find that these IT groups are not developer centric, right? They don't maybe understand how to write code. They don't understand pipelines, et cetera. So, um, what how is how is Pulumi finding that success? You know, what what is it about Pulumi? Um, is there is there a UX maybe that I'm not familiar with, or or does you know are these teams putting like a, a almost like a click ops driven sort of um, you know experience on top of Pulumi? Like what's helping them bridge that gap? Because I, I've I've heard from Gartner and and et cetera, you know, uh, the biggest barrier to entry to a lot of these tools is is quite simply the fact that it requires coding skills, right? And a lot of these teams don't have that. So what, how are you guys finding a success? And and what would you tell an organization that maybe is struggling with uh, with that? Yeah, it's a great question. I I would say um, there's sort of like folks that do understand PowerShell or maybe they'll do a little bit of Python scripting. And for those folks, it's actually, it was surprising to me, I'll say, you know, um, how many folks are comfortable just 
learning sort of the minimal subset necessary to use uh, Pulumi in, say, Python. You actually don't need to know much. Like if you, if you were comfortable using something like a chef um, cookbook or something, you know, it's okay. It's not much more. Much it's more not much more. That. Okay. That said, um, you mentioned the ClickOps thing. So we're actually, um, we have this major, you know, product uh, launch where Pulumi is really a cloud engineering platform is kind of how we're, we're talking about it. And we're actually adding a lot more of that click oriented workflow into the product over time because we've seen our own customers building that. So we have a case study with Mercedes Benz actually, they, they basically wanted to have a point and click way to provision new Kubernetes clusters that so are like almost like a, a catalog, right? You know, uh, precisely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. A catalog is great. Uh, in fact, we're, we're announcing sort of a gallery, which which is effectively a built-in catalog. It's got to be a little bit different, right? It, it can't be a catalog. You have to call it a gallery. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> actually, maybe it's not too late to actually rename it because catalog is, is quite nice. But, um, <laughs> but but yeah, the idea is like, hey, if you you know if if you've got a standard thing and you just want to deploy the standard thing, maybe plug in a number or some minimal config. There's no reason to go break up the code to do that, right? Exactly. And so I mean, the differences between like Mike as a engineer and a developer, and myself as a traditional IT administrator, like it, it might be minimal, but the ability for Mike to be able to expose that to me and my team as a clickable object, right? That that's there's a lot of value there, right? It, it's I don't think you would understand it as a clickable object either. I don't think I would either. Yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> the, cool, the cool thing, by the way, that Pulumi can do is even if you click or even if you, like even if you go into Amazon console and do the thing that you should never do, quote, you know, I'm doing air quotes now, you can't see that. I think I'm logged into the Amazon console right now. So. <laughs> <laughs> everybody, everybody does it, right? Um, especially for things like Azure, like it's not even obvious like how to go just write the code from, from the outset because all these resources interconnect in, in non-obvious ways. We have the ability, even if you start from point and click, you, you can use Pulumi import and it will like spit out the code, the infrastructure's code that you, had you written that code, it would have created the resources that you're importing. That's so nice. you can kind of reverse engineer, which is, which is actually a nice workflow. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I think one of the nice things I like is you have a bunch of converters. Like if, if you want to convert Kubernetes YAML, bring it right in. If you want to talk about that product that Andrew told me not to talk about and, uh, you know, convert that <laughs> into good, then you can bring that right in. So I think that's, uh, you know, that's that's pretty cool about that. Um, you know, the one thing I was thinking about for Pulumi is that you should have a kind of uh, clicked or, or uh template to start maybe you do have this i haven't looked at it in a while but like a template to start so let's say you wanted to deploy kubernetes and it's a basic cluster or something you should have like a template that says hey small medium large just click this and you'll deploy that and it'll create the code for you to deploy small medium large you know just so that people that are starting to get into it could kind of not even have to do anything but just kind of click on that maybe that's what the catalog is going to do or i'm so is it cal library what was it gallery uh, gallery, yeah, gallery. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, I think that having that kind of like uh, almost template out of the box kind of experience for people to get into it is awesome. And by the way, your documentation is great. So I, you know, I think you can get a lot there. But um, I think, you know, even going the step further, just saying, hey, you know, these are the common targets and this is the common way people set it up. You know, just do that out of the box. And maybe you do. I don't know. Well, no, it's a great, it's a great point. I was going to say, Mike, if, if you need help Googling Pulumi and instructions on Stack Overflow, <laughs> I can certainly show you how to do that. <laughs> no, it, it's hard, right? Because the cloud is just so fractal. There's like 
thousands, I don't know, hundreds of thousands. <laughs> if you add, we, we, we support 70 different infrastructure providers. You add up all the different resource types across all of those and the different architectures you can create with that, it's bewildering, which is part of the power, right? It's amazing what you can do, but it's also daunting. And how do you get started? And, and furthermore, to your point, like there's a, there's a tried and true set of best practices and why should you have to rediscover that? So you're absolutely right. The gallery is meant to solve that. Awesome. The key is, it's taken a while because we, we now have a component model where the gallery will be based on components and you'll be able to start with point and click if that's what you want. But if you want code, you'll actually be able to generate the code for that architecture in any language. And so we have this new multi-language component. So if you want Python, you get Python. If you want Go, you get Go. And it's feature equivalent across all of those. And so that's that's really exciting. The hard part again is like, what are the canonical 18 or 50 or 1000 patterns that we should create. Yeah. So what we're gonna do is we're, we're gonna have a public gallery that the community can contribute to in addition to us. That makes sense. We'll see it with a lot of common patterns, but we see a lot of community uh, contributions to these best practices. And so we're hoping that, you know, we can bootstrap something pretty exciting there. And are you going to like back end that with things like Juju and, uh, you know, all these other kinds of uh, orchestration that you can kind of just click and, you know, kind of consume those too? Yeah, we, we typically do like CICD sort of integrations um, for some of the orchestrations like GitHub Actions and, and gotcha. that's typically how we do the workflow. Like type of stuff, yeah. Exactly, because, you know, you typically want to control the execution environment for some of the workflow. Um, as how you're, how are you doing deployments and, but it's going to be extensible. So if you want to integrate with, you know, your own system, you'll be able to do that as well. Now, is that a, is that only for the commercial offering or is that for the open source too? Uh, we have, so we have a SaaS. So the open source is basically the SDK is all open source. So yep. the CLI, the libraries, all the tools, the engine, uh, and then we have a SaaS and the SaaS is that's where you know we've got an enterprise edition, but it is free for individ unlimited individual use, and we have a free tier for teams as well. Um, which, while we're recording this, is not yet live, but will be live. <laughs> okay. So, so all that's available in that as well. But um, the open source is really extensible, and all the CI/CD integrations you can get with the open source. The SaaS just makes it like super easy. The analogy I draw is like Git and GitHub, right? It's yeah. like our CLI and our SaaS kind of gotcha. similar situation. That totally makes sense. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Um, and I'm definitely gonna take a look at the SaaS once it's, uh, when, when this goes live, I'm gonna take a look at the SaaS so that it'll be there. Yeah, um, yeah no, that's, that's really interesting. I'm really curious to see what, what it looks like and, and how you guys did that. So uh, that'll be pretty interesting. Um, you know, it's, it's, always, it's always interesting for us, as I said, we're, you know, we're in this world where we come from, you know, our company, is known for IT ops and you know we're going into DevOps and so we have this whole new platform around Intersight which is our SaaS platform and you know we try and make people and we, and we have the same idea but not with dev tools like you guys are doing we're just doing it you know as uh, we need IT ops to manage in the way they're associated with and kind of using the GUI and things like that but given the governance and role-based access control and things like that to the uh, to the to the others to, to to set that stuff up, and then we want people to consume things in you know using the tools they're accustomed to. So all of the you know whether it's Pulumi or whatever it is, we want people to be able to do that. Um, but it's hard to create a product, and, and I'm sure you could relate to this that does 
those things and kind of combines them together to, to create a, an, an area that can converge. And I think the, the rules around that have changed over the years. You know, Andrew started out earlier talking about cloud management platforms. A lot of those cloud management platforms aren't even relevant today because people don't operate in that way anymore. You know, the, the developers always want to develop in text and command line and, and uh, you know, and mostly GitOps and things like that. Whereas the IT ops want want to want to just make sure the governance and policy is there. So I think it's a really interesting time to be in this space to try and figure out, you know, how that converges. Um, and I totally forget where I was going to go with this, but <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's true. And like, that's, that's kind of the, the convergence, as you say, which I, yeah. I love that, that phrasing like that, that's trying, that's what we're trying to get to, right? We want yeah. the cloud engineering platform Pulumi to be the place where you've got all these standard components that reflect the community best practices, but also your own, you know, we'll have a private um, registry capability as well. So, and, and then for folks who want to consume those best practices, you know, it's the infrastructure platform team that publishes those best practices, and then some people consume it. And it could be operators or scaling up environments, and they're they're more of a click-driven workflow. Or it could be the de developer wants to consume it, but they might not be a total infrastructure expert, but they know they want a new microservice environment in, you know, running in Kubernetes. Well, they're going to have a command line where they can do that. Uh, or if you want to do infrastructure as code, you can consume it that way. So like these three modes of consumption satisfy the different personas that are typically we typically work with in an organization. We also do have this new developer tool that um, we're launching that that really helps with that command line workflow where maybe you're not an infrastructure as code expert, but you but infrastructure is part of your your job, which is increasingly true for developers. Cool. Yeah, that's awesome. So uh, I have one last, I think, fun question before we, we end the, the, the podcast, but multi-cloud or hybrid cloud, which, uh, which do you put your money behind and why? I think hybrid is here to stay for sure. Okay. And um, how do you define hybrid, I guess, would be, would be my next question. <laughs> well, so I, I often stay away from multi-cloud. I think I might have used that phrase earlier in this conversation. I often say many cloud um, uh, because it's like different. Um, but to me, multi-cloud has a bad connotation. Like a lot of people talk about multi-cloud as being lowest common denominator. Uh, and I don't think of it that way. I don't think lowest common denominator is the right way to go typically. I mean, for some cases it, it could be, but, and like the compute is getting standardized thanks to Kubernetes in some ways. Although if you're doing serverless, that's not yet standardized. So, but to me, hybrid and many cloud is, is all about using the right cloud and the right capabilities where it makes sense um, and, and playing to the strengths of the different cloud providers, right? Like if, if you're using, you know, Amazon Redshift, like you should probably know you're using Amazon Redshift because it's got a whole bunch of rich capabilities yeah. that if you try to dumb that down to the lowest common denominator, you're just going to miss out, right? And, but to me, the reason why I said hybrid in my answer is because I just see so many organizations, like large organizations, they've got on-prem investments and they've got virtual machine workload-based workloads. And the idea that you're just gonna blow that all up just because the cloud is popular, like it just doesn't make financial sense. I, I could not agree more, oh, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I actually have one other question because I just thought about it. Um, so one of the things that I think, you know, the cloud uh, providers are very good at is, is creating that lock-in. You know, creating that 
you know, okay, we have the whole stack. Why are you using somebody else? Just use all our tools. We'll make it super easy. You don't even have to re-authenticate because it's all in the same cloud. You know, how do you, um, how do you kind of answer that when people come to you and say, well, why would I use the next set of tools? Because, um, you know, the, my cloud provider is giving me everything I need. They have the templating engines, they have the orchestration, they have all the tools, you know, how do you, you know, and this is something we go up against too. So I'm just curious your perspective on that kind of, uh, you know, environment. Yeah. So for Pulumi, what I usually say is you standardize on the workflow and the tools and practices you're using to provision and manage infrastructure and to govern and apply policy to your infrastructure. And if you believe the premise that everything's going to fundamentally be hybrid and many cloud, then just picking one of the vendors to standardize on your workflow and your tools is actually problematic because what we find in practice is you actually don't standardize. What, what that means is now you have N different sets of tools that you then have to integrate. You're like, huh, how do I apply policy across all these, these uh, different technologies? Well, I've got a different stack for Kubernetes, I got a different stack for AWS, a different stack for vSphere, a different stack for OpenStack, a different, like it's just, it's crazy, right? And if you're the VP of engineering looking at this whole thing, it's, it's like the wild west, it's chaos, right? So we all come in and help tame the chaos. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. And I think it goes right back to your answer of hybrid cloud and, and not multi-cloud because, you know, at the end of the day, when you're evaluating these platforms. Yeah, hold on, Andrew, is your phone near your uh, mic? No. I hear noise. <laughs> oh, sorry. Let me, is this better if I screwed up a little bit closer? No, it's just I hear like static, so. Yeah. No. Is it uh, Yeah. Is lower? No, I don't think so. Well, I, Mike, I hope you're taking notes. You got to edit out here. So yeah, yeah, is, this, is, is this sound any better or no? No, it sounds worse, actually. I think you got to go further back. Matter of fact, go in a different room. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, no, that's 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 a good point. Um, you know, and I think that's exactly the almost the same verbiage that we use, you know, across the board. Um, you know, it, it is interesting and it is, you know, people don't realize the lock-in that they get from going to, you know, these different things. And I think that that's, to me, when I saw all these clouds come about, I almost would love to see, and you know, I guess Apache LibCloud kind of did it, and you guys do it too. But almost a unified, standard way of communicating with resource. Like, if you want disk, it should be called disk. If you want, you know, object storage, it should be called object storage. And I guess to, to really, I mean, that's really what you guys are doing. Um, but, but uh, I mean, I would love there to be a standard, a real standard around it, so that people can just kind of, you know, uh, get what they need. And hopefully, hopefully you guys can hear me now, right? Yeah, no, that's better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what I was trying to say is a lot of enterprises, when they evaluate these tools, and just to back up what you're, you're saying now, Michael, is the idea of openness versus time to value. So when you look at when you look at a product like AWS CloudFormation, you know, time to value is actually uh, fairly minimal, right? Based on what uh, Mike was saying, because you're in the environment, it's it's purpose built for it. You're inside the ecosystem, right? They're great tools for that specific cloud, but they're not very open. Right. Um, I, I don't think it's a surprise to anyone that cloud formations doesn't work very well with Azure. Right. That's not a surprise to anybody. And so when you start looking at maybe the cloud management platforms, you've got the opposite problem where you've got something that maybe is a little bit more open, uh, probably a, a lot more open, but it requires a lot of buy in. 
it, it, and, and, and that increases your time to value. And, and then potentially you have to enter some sort of services agreement just to like actually implement the damn thing. So, you know, that's kind of where I think open source is finding its its stride. And I, I think that really speaks to the, the nature of hybrid cloud. You're never going to be in one cloud ever again. You have a very, very big investment on the private data center. And so you need to find a solution that sits somewhere in the middle. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Some of the analogies, like I hesitate to bring it up because people always have this negative connotation with Microsoft being this, you know, monopoly. And but you look at, you know, the lock-in thing. Like clearly, one of Windows' strategy was to lock you into the Windows ecosystem, and and you never, you can never escape, right? And like yeah. a lot of that playing out with the public cloud. And the funny thing is, we don't think of it, but I think we're building an operating system for the cloud, and we don't we don't think of it in that terms. But what is an operating system? It's a piece of software. That manages the hardware for you, right? Yeah. And apply policy and security, and like that's exactly what we're doing for. We're just for, not talking machine language anymore. We're talking APIs, you know. <laughs> right. And, well, and YAML, lots of and YAML. YAML, lots of YAML, <laughs> lots but, and lots of YAML. But I think that's a perspective for me that gets really exciting because if you buy the premise that we're all cloud developers, we're all cloud engineers, we're infrastructure, you know, infrastructure is central to that, and and we're building distributed applications and the cloud is the new operating system. Like that's a really exciting future. I and I think that's a, that's a great place to leave it off. You know, I think that this has been an awesome conversation and I really enjoyed talking about all this stuff. Um, and uh, definitely enjoyed having you on this show. So thank you very, very much. Yeah. yeah thanks, Joe. Had a great time. Yeah. Thanks guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right.